This is Sam. This is Justin. And this is Southpaw. So today we've brought back Justin Osborne, who we had on in the previous episode, helping us break down the UFC fight night, Al Iaquinta versus Donald Cerrone. And the reason why I wanted to bring him back is because he has a pretty interesting story. And just like we left off last episode, Paul is still gone at a K-pop concert. So he's doing his K-pop thing. We're going to do our MMA thing over here. So hi, Justin. Hey, Sam. So how do we even approach this subject? So you're born, right? And then let's take it from there. Your parents had you, they're raising you, and then you told me that they discovered something. Right. So as I was uh, growing up, well, in my infant years, uh, my parents were noticing that there were, there were certain cues that I wasn't responding I wasn't really speaking. And so they took me to uh, Iowa City, uh, to the University of Iowa's uh, Children's Hospital. Wait, how old were you at this point? Uh, this was when I was three, so I don't remember any of it. So they took me there at the age of three. And uh, I was diagnosed on the uh, autism spectrum. And so... I actually ended up not speaking until I was five. So it, it's been a very interesting journey to say the least. And uh, a lot of it was just a lot. My parents put in a lot of um, hard work and a lot of hours into it. Um, I remember my, my mom had this like phonics book that we would just go through and we just do these activities over and over again until we got them right. And we just wouldn't stop until it was like 100% right. You know, just just because it was so important to them, like for me to um, for for me to uh, be successful one day because they they had the idea of, OK, we're, we, we can't take care of Justin forever because at one point. You know, we're not going to be, you know, we're going to die at one point. He's going to be an adult at one point and he's got to be able to take care of himself. Right. So um, they just had that mentality that they weren't going to let my autism limit me. Right. They were going to, they, they were, we were going to take it and make the best of it. Mm. So uh, it was a very interesting approach. And I'm happy that my parents did take that approach and they weren't asking for the world to feel sorry for them or for me. And, uh, it was pretty cool. Cause, uh, it was like the first in the, uh, first grade they were trying, the school was trying to stick me into special education classes. And my parents called up to the school board and said, no, he, you know, he needs to go to class with like the regular kids, you know? And they're like, are you sure? Well, you know, they were like, yes, he needs to go to class with the regular kids. So it was, it, it's been interesting kind of growing up, you know, on the spectrum and stuff and uh, kind of being in a world that's not really, <laughs> it's not really made for you, 
you know, so you're constantly asked to, uh, adapt to everybody else and everybody else's expectations in society. So I have a, we'll get into a lot of interesting scenarios that I've been around just being on the spectrum and stuff. Now, when you say you're on the spectrum, are you on the Asperger's side of things or, or no? So, well, the truth be told, Asperger's is actually not an official diagnosis anymore. Oh, it's not. Yeah. It's, um, it's actually been taken down just, uh, because it's hard to class the thing about the autism spectrum is very hard to classify things. But yeah, if I was to put it in simple terms, then yes, I would be on more of the Asperger side. But the reason why it's called a spectrum is because there's so many different things with an autistic person. So for example, like I'll just say my autism, right? I have like alexithymia and things like that. So I don't really identify with emotions very well from myself or from others. You also mentioned that you don't really think in words like the rest of us do. You think in pictures. Yeah. Almost every autistic person I know thinks in pictures. Okay. So that's more of a common trait. Yeah. None of them, because the thing about it is, is there's certain parts of the brain that are turned off. Right. But then other parts are turned on. So like there's things that there's pathway, there's neural pathways in my brain that are opened up that in a, well, neurotypical person, right. Somebody that has typical neural patterns, right. So a normal person, right. So for a neurotypical person, their brain doesn't go to those regions, but an autistic person's brain does just the same, like a neurotypical person's brain, you know, neural pathways, right. There's places they can get to in their brain that we can't. Yeah. So it's very different. So basically as an autistic person, you're expected to adapt to whatever, you know, society's like, no, we communicate like this, do it like this, like, and it's very hard, right to be you're basically asking us to constantly do the impossible because like for example it's kind of like I, I use this example a lot so it's like a mac computer and a uh and just in a windows desktop right they're both the same they both perform the same function they just do it in a different way that idea really made sense to me when i was reading articles back in the day about neurodiversity, which still to this day isn't talked about much as far as uh, mainstream conversations about autism. But neurodiversity is basically that. It's saying it's not the same as like certain other things where they're less capable. You could have people on the spectrum who are just as capable, but like to your analogy, maybe they're using a different operating system than you. Yeah, that's exactly it they're using a different operating system. And so for example, right, just because a person may be a nonverbal autistic person, it doesn't mean that they're not intelligent. They just have to communicate to you their ideas in a different way. Yeah. So much of the limitations is really about how they interact or how you interact with other people. Yeah, exactly. And I'll put kind of, you can put limitations kind of like, there, there are certain limitations, but like, it's kind of like almost, in, you can almost put it in air quotes. So for example, right? Like if a neurotypical person is communicating to an autistic person, what people don't understand is the limitations actually go both ways. You're limited in communicating with me as well as I'm limited in communicating with you. 
but a lot of people don't see it like that. They see it that we're limited. We are limited just because we don't communicate like the rest of the world does. That shows a limitation right there because the other person, the non-autistic person is thinking binary terms, right? Exactly. So we all have limitations in, in a sense, right? But the autistic people are, are considered limited, right? And there are some that have like legitimate limitations, right? But I'm talking just in terms of like, say you're more on the quote unquote high functioning uh, end, right? Which I'll tell you why the functioning labels don't really work, but quote unquote high functioning, right? Let's just take the world, right? And we'll flip it upside down. Let's say the majority of the world was autistic and then the vast majority was neurotypical, right? Then the people that would be considered limited would be the neurotypical population, right? But because it's the way it is, then the autistic people are the ones that are considered limited. When it's related to how you interact with other people, it's all about the average. And if the average were to be flipped, then this other type of person might be the new atypical. Yeah, exactly. So it... So like, for example, like innuendos kind of go over my head. So like one day, um, you know, I'm in college and we're at a bar and my buddies just come up to me and they're like, and they know that I'm autistic. Right. And so they're just like, Hey man, that girl right there wants to talk to you. And I was like, Oh, she does. Okay. You know what I mean? But I, but I myself, I'm not picking that up because it's not, it's just something, it's just flying over my head. Cause you're using those you're using those neurotypical signals, you know what I mean? And my, my Mac operating system brain, it, it doesn't work, right? It's, it's like, mm, I don't understand that. You know what I mean? It's just, it's not picking it up, right? But if it was like sent in a certain different kind of like wavelength, right? Maybe I would pick that up, right? Does that make sense? Actually, this is a problem that a lot of people from uh, foreign countries deal with when they first come to the US. Maybe not so much if you're from Europe or another Western country, but let's say you're from Africa or you're from East Asia and you don't even speak English that well, then it's not just the language barrier itself, but those type of innuendos you said or cultural customs don't make sense because we're used to a different actually operating system. The, the rules, the norms, the social norms are completely different. I remember when I was a kid coming to the US from Korea, kids used to pick on me and make fun of me. And, and it wasn't just about me being Asian or being quote unquote, a chink or those kind of things. So they would often also call me, you know, a derogatory term like retard, because also I didn't pick up on those things. And I think that's actually a, a way for people to kind of understand that, wait a minute, it's not even, it's actually not that different from people from other countries. And you wouldn't consider somebody from a different country to be, you know, mentally inept they just understand the world differently. Because like in Asian languages, we don't use as much subjective terms. We use what's called indicative. So it's not up for as much interpretation and we don't use as much kind of like metaphoric terms. Right. So then all of a sudden you come to a country and everything means something else or you're using it as an analogy or a metaphor or you're talking to me about what ifs. Like if you were to do this and I come from a country where we never talk about what ifs, we would probably refer to it as in the case of 
then we will be completely confused, right? Right. So it's not just a language barrier, the way we perceive and even think about the world is differently. And I think actually, that sounds a lot like what you're describing. Yeah, exactly. And it's, that's what a lot of people don't understand when they're, when they think about autism, right? They think about like little kids that get, which totally happens. It's totally legit, right? They think about little kids, right? That are getting bullied in school and stuff like that. But they don't realize that these, these kids, they grow up to be adults, right? So like when you're an adult and your way of living isn't accepted in society, right? Then you start having like mental problems and mental breakdowns. That's what was happening with me as I grew like into adulthood. I'd start having mental breakdowns just because I didn't have anybody to talk to about my, you know, quote unquote problems and stuff. I didn't know how to solve them. So, uh, I actually ended up getting a life coach and she's helped me out a lot. She specializes in the autism spectrum. So she's done great, great things for me, you know, but there's still, there's still a lot, a lot more to go. How much easier would it be if people were just more sensitive to it and didn't think of it in the old model of this is a problem that needs to be fixed or there's something wrong with you? Oh, oh, it'd be infinitely easier. Like you don't even, oh my gosh. So like, I'll, I'll bring up another example. So like I was dating a girl once and I, I told her, I was like, Hey, you know, it's not a big deal or anything, but I am on the autism spectrum. And then shortly thereafter, she dumped me, you know what I mean? So it's like, you have to, you know, I don't mean to bring this up in like a, Oh, like, you know, sob story or whatever. But you know, when your brain goes through an experience like that, then you don't even want to like open up to people anymore. You know what I mean? You don't even want to be quote unquote transparent with those people types of people anymore you know what i mean because you get that like kind of negative reinforcement going on so it's kind of something that you grapple with like what am i supposed to do you know what i mean like everybody else gets to i don't want to make this like a, like a woe is me kind of thing but why do i have to play the game by a different set of rules like everybody else gets to be open and honest right but i can't be open and honest with people but but autism has this like everybody views autism in this like weird like almost negative light it's stigmatized yeah exactly if i was to go up to somebody and say hey i'm autistic you know please you know just be clear with everything and blah 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 you know then they're going to look they they just give you this look like ooh like ugh, like i like i got a scarlet letter on it so it's it's one of those things that it, it's just going to take time and it's uh that's why i hope I hope that as a byproduct of my MMA career and my success, that people can view autism in a different light. Has all these experiences and working with people to help you kind of uh, learn to cope with us, it, it's kind of fucked up because we're the neurotypical people, but we're kind of insensitive. So for you to deal with insensitive people, has that uh, taught you to be more empathetic or more sensitive to different kinds of people, not just other people on the spectrum, but just different kinds of people just all around, whether it's race, sex, different types of uh, neurodiversity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I've always just like said, just like whatever makes people happy, you know, just let them go on with it. Right. So long as it's not like, so long as it's not inhibiting my, my day to day. Right. So 
for example, I've always said to people like with illegal immigration, right? It sucks that these people, they basically don't, we tell these people, okay, do it the right way, right? Do it the right way. But they basically don't have a choice. It's like, okay, so I can do it the right way, right? And my, you know, I'm constantly like living in danger and um, impoverished and my family basically doesn't have a future or I can, you know, do it you know, the wrong way, et cetera. Right. And quote unquote, the wrong way when really all they're doing is they're just doing what they got to do to survive. You know, everybody would do the same thing. Like, so like the way I, the way I view people is like, what would you do if you're in that situation? Right. Or how would you live if you were in that person's shoes? Right. You nailed it right there. What what would you do? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's not even like, that's just like one of the, my first examples that comes to my head, right? Like for all the neurotypical people out there and they don't get autism, like, okay, what would you do if, if you always felt like you had, like, how would you feel if you always felt like you, you know, I'm, I'm pretty open with my autism now, right. And everything, but what would you do if you were on a date with a girl and you had, and you felt not not consciously but subconsciously like you know your brain has all those defense mechanisms subconsciously that you don't even think about right how would you feel if you had a brain that had those defensive subconscious mechanisms as you're just trying to go on a date with a girl or a guy or whatever people think about autism and the problems and they think about like they think about like the communication and the education part of it, but they don't think about like, okay, these kids are going to be adults. So that's why I use the, I, I use the extreme examples like that because that's what's going to get people's attention. What do you mean by become adults? These kids are going to become adults. They're going to grow up. They, they look at autism, right? And they don't understand that the number one cause of premature death for autistic adults is suicide. Oh, wow. Yeah, because they're they're living in a world that's not made for them. Everything that they do is viewed as backwards to other people, right? So then they're just like, and then, or they're masking, which I used to do a lot. And then when you mask for so long, you put on the front that I'm not autistic to other people, so you're accepted in society, you end up breaking down because you're having to do all this extra work and it puts more you're putting your brain through extra work because you're you're doing stuff that doesn't come natural to you all the time you know what i mean so so then it ends up it ends up breaking if that makes sense so what you're saying when you say the way you're treating these autistic kids the way you treat them now they might break then as an adult because of how we stigmatize or how we viewed autism from childhood yeah exactly and like they, they view the autistic, they don't view all the autistic problems, right? Like I use dating as an example, right? The neurotypical dating playbook, right? It just doesn't work for autistic people. Everybody is so concerned. This is what people are concerned about with like autistic kids as they grow up, right? They're concerned. Oh my God, are they going to go to college? Are they going to get a degree? Are they going to graduate from high school and blah, 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 which those are good concerns to have. Like, are they going to be able to go through the education system right but there's bigger problems like are they going to be able to form good long lasting relationships right because that's what every person wants right they want not 
that not just significant others, but like friends and et cetera, are they going to be able to do those things? So, um, the reason I use that, that dating, I keep using dating examples, right. Is because nobody else thinks of those things. They only think about education, 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 probably because in this country, people make such a big deal of going to college, but they don't make such a big deal about forming friendships and relationships and having good communication with people. In a capitalistic society, right? We don't value uh, social relationships when it really comes down to it. When you're really breaking stuff down to the bare bones of what you want for a kid, those are the things people talk about. Are they going to be able to go to school? Are they going to be able to get a job? Are they going to be able to make a lot of money? Like that's, what we value. And then we forget about the things that really matter are our relationships with other human beings. And unfortunately, in the society that we live in, those things aren't nearly valued enough. Yeah, exactly. Because you can't put dollar signs on that. Yeah, exactly. You can't put dollar signs on it. It's, it's, it's intangible, right? Like, for example, like I, I got my degree in exercise science from the University of South Alabama, right? And so I've got this degree, right? So that's not case closed, right? Like you got the college degree, you made it through school, right? And those are the biggest pressing concerns. Like that should be like, oh, okay, case closed. He's done. He 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 succeeded. Yeah, he's done. <laughs> he's got no problems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Problem solved, you know? <laughs> But this is a big thing with the autism community is getting a job, right? So like a lot of the autistic people are qualified for the job, but they flunk the job interview. And it's not their fault that they flunk the job interview. It's that they, they're putting they're getting put in positions to fail at that job interview. They're they're getting asked questions in a way that their brain can't quite I don't want to say comprehend, but like can't quite interpret correctly. So then they flunk the job interview where they have all the qualifications to get a job, but then it's, they, like I said, they flunk, they, they flunk job interview or like their people skills, et cetera. So yeah, they got their degree, they got all this stuff. And then the autistic person's like, man, I did all this stuff and I got nothing. Like, what am I supposed to do now? You know what I mean? I guess those are some of the big quote unquote struggles with, or I shouldn't even say quote unquote, but those are some of the big struggles with the autism community because it's like the, again, where, where you're framing everything right in a neurotypical sense, but you need to, you need to adapt it because once you adapt it to an autistic person, they're going to be able to relay it right back to you. It's also kind of a learning moment for the neurotypical person where yeah, a lot of the things we think is normal is only normal because we assume it's normal. But this is all made up anyway. Like shaking hands. There's no biological imperative or no scientific <laughs> reason we shake hands. Yeah. We just assume that's normal and then it is normal, but it doesn't have any logic to it. In fact, it's actually quite illogical because it's a good way to spread diseases. And that's <laughs> actually that Western custom came to a lot of countries and that's how a lot of diseases spread. So in a lot of ways, it's illogical. But if you don't know to shake hands, they might be like, oh, this person's weird or there's something off with them where we have to actually kind of second guess our own assumptions. Like, yeah, these are all just like made up bullshit rules. And if it becomes apparent to us that these are the rules, fine, it does. But if it's not apparent to other people, so what? That doesn't mean anything either. Yeah, exactly. It's all a bunch of made up 
you know, bull, you know, like you said, it's all a bunch of bullshit, you know? And it's, so it's like, I don't understand your bullshit, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, so, oh, you don't understand my bullshit. Well, fuck you. You know what I mean? That's kind of, that's kind of how it goes. And so there's a lot of stuff like, so for instance, right? Like I do personal training, right? For my clients, right? I write down things in like a general sense but like when people look at my workout sheets like if my boss were to get my workout sheet he wouldn't understand jack shit so it's like i write it down everything in a general sense because i know my client and i know how to adapt it to my client if that makes sense but for the neurotypicals what they'll do is when they write down their workouts and their sheets they write it down very concretely and they're like okay blah 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 my client is going to do this today blah 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 whereas i'm more so like gonna all right generally this is what the goal is for today now how i get there is gonna be different just based on like what's going on with this person etc like did they get enough to eat today did you know are they having a stressful day or whatever i adapt things i can adapt things on the fly it's actually kind of counterintuitive because you as the person with autism has more of an ability to adapt to your clients than people who are more neurotypical, who are more like, I have a boilerplate system and you're trying to make me go outside of the system. What's wrong with you today? Right. And a lot of times too, um, with the clients I know a lot better, right? I don't even write things down. Like for the clients that I know them, like once I work somebody out, right? so many times, like probably about for about a month, I get to know them. I get to know how their body moves, what they're physically capable of. Then I'm like, okay, I don't really need to write things down anymore because I I have this weird thing with my memory, my memory. Like I can remember like what I did with that client last week, the week before, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, et cetera. Right. Like almost immediately. So then I don't have to necessarily write things down. When I do write things down, it's more so for them to look at than for me to look at. Actually, this is a good segue because we're talking about physical activity and you are a personal trainer and also an MMA fighter. But one of the stereotypes, and you could explain to me if I'm right or not, is if you are autistic, you know, in childhood, you have motor development issues and inability to like, you know, coordinate as well as some other kids. Is this true or is this dependent on where you are on the spectrum? Dependent on where you are on the spectrum. So for me, for instance, like once the motor movements were explained to me, I picked them up almost immediately. So like, that's how I got my nickname with the machine. Once, once things were explained to me in a clear, concise way, when it comes to fighting techniques, I almost picked it up immediately. This is actually really good because there is such a stereotype that just like you said, thinking of pictures, we tend to think that uniformly anybody on the spectrum are all physically inept in some way. But what you're saying is no. And in fact, for you in particular, you're like a machine where if they show it to you one time and explain it to you, you pick it up very quickly. Yeah, but it all depends on how they explain it. So for instance, like... If Mike Pyle shows me a jiu-jitsu move, I'm probably going to pick it up right away, right? Because of the way he explains it, right? Whereas if I have another guy show me the same move, I may not pick it up right away just because of the way they explain it. 
does that make sense? I guess it's almost the way for everybody, but for me in particular, it's like, okay, if this guy shows me the move, right, I'll pick it up almost immediately. But if somebody else shows it to me, it may not be true just because of how they explain it. Were you always uh, from childhood? I, I know it took you a while to learn how to speak, but maybe in elementary school and later, were you kind of more on the athletic side? Were you a jock? Did you take well to sports? Yeah, so I, I played a lot of sports. I, I like when it comes to the sports, I always gave my best effort. So, um, like for instance, so like foot football, I loved playing football, right? So I actually ended up. I played two years of college football and then my career abruptly ended. And then that's how I got myself into MMA. But I played a bunch of sports, football, basketball, uh, baseball, right? But then eventually I just started specializing in football. And uh, then eventually just kind of, you know, once I, my football career kind of abruptly ended, I got into MMA. Well, explain that. How did it abruptly end? Uh, so for instance, I put down, uh, the NCAA comes in, right. And I was playing football for the university of South Alabama, D one football. And it was a dream of mine for a long time to be a D one football player. And I worked my way up from the bottom. Literally, I went to a junior college my freshman year, not because my grades were bad, but because I actually, you know, I didn't get recruited by anybody because I didn't get any playing time in high school. Right. right. But I knew I was good enough to play. I just, my coach just didn't want to play me because other booster, other parents in like the booster club were giving him, were giving them money, more money. So then their kids got to play. It's politics. Right. Right. So then I was like, screw it. I'm going to go to a Juco, try out a Juco and made a Juco team and then actually played, played some of my freshman year at a Juco good enough to where I could go to the university of South Alabama and actually got division two scholarship offers, but I did not take them because I was like, Nope, I'm going to play division one football. So then I ended up doing uh, division one football and uh, I was, I, I was a walk on for division one and made it and all this stuff. And I was like, all right, I'm working my way up the system and blah, blah, blah. And then they, the NCAA comes through with paperwork and they asked you, okay, what kind of medications do you take? And blah, blah, blah. So I was taking a medication for my autism at the time. And, uh, the NCAA was not cool with that. And because I didn't have a TUE or a therapeutic use exemption, I was suspended and basically, like right then and there. I mean, when you're a walk on a D1 football school, you're basically bottom of the barrel. So then I was cut. Oh man, what the fuck? And I, all because I told the truth. If I would have just lied, I probably wouldn't have gotten drug tested. You know what I mean? For it or anything, right? Oh God. So it was like literally just because I told the truth. And then I tried to, exp and I had like the prescription and the paperwork and everything for it. But the NCAA was like, no, you didn't do your due diligence and get your therapeutic use exemption. I was like, but I can't get this, but you're saying my paperwork is good, but I can't get it retroactively. And they're like, nope. Well, the NCAA problems, that's a whole different episode. <laughs> they have so many problems. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm such a small fry that they don't care. Right. But if I was like, if it was like Tua, Right, Tua Tua Gavela, whatever his last name is, the University of Alabama quarterback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't let him <laughs> off the hook. 
right? But some no name walk on, nah, you're gonna get, you know, you're gonna get suspended. So, anyways, so after that, I was pretty empty because I I had sacrificed so much to play football and been through so much, man. I mean. Uh, like literally everything I was doing was bottom of the barrel. Like I was bottom of the barrel at everything and I worked so hard and, you know, and, uh, then to get that, that pulled out from underneath of me. I mean, I was, I was a depressed wreck. I mean, I've never, I've never been in that place ever since just so dark. It was just like, I, <laughs> it was like when Batman falls into the cave and he's just surrounded by darkness. That's kind of what it felt like. <laughs> And then, you know, I was always a fan of MMA growing up. I grew up in Iowa, so I was always like, I always liked like Pat Militich's guys, you know, even though they may not have been the best people, you know what I mean? But I was a kid at the time and I was rooting for them or whatever. So I was like, you know what? I've always been a fan of mixed martial arts, you know, I love Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture and stuff. So I was like, you know what? Let's give this a shot, you know? And so one day I went to an MMA, I went to Port City MMA in Mobile, Alabama, and took a class. And then ever since I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. <laughs> you know, I started off. And my coach said, you know, you're not going to go. I'm not going to let you fight unless you get like double gold in every grappling tournament, right? And so my first grappling tournament, I lost one of the tournaments by advantage because the guy pulled guard and just squeezed his legs together, and I mean i was like i thought i was winning because i was on top <laughs> you know what i mean i was like what the hell like there's but then i was like also kind of like what the hell because there's no overtime i thought there was overtime <laughs> you know what i mean i was like what the hell and then uh i lost the other match in like the nogi tournament by arm bar but then after that you know i ended up double golding in every tournament um and then he actually ended up letting me fight like almost it might have been a year and a half later i ended up getting my first mma fight as an amateur scored like seven takedowns in the in like two amateur rounds which is like a lot because you know amateur rounds are only three minutes long and then you know i i went for an arm triangle which i wasn't very good at at the time and got flipped over on my back got punched in the face a bunch of times and then i threw up a triangle and choked him in the second round and that was my first amateur fight. And then ever since then, it's, uh, it's been full speed ahead, I guess. Did it seem just like any other athletic endeavor you've ever done in your life or did MMA seem different? Uh, similar, there were similarities and differences, I guess. But in terms of striking, I've, I started off as more of a kicker, um, being so long for the division, it was easy to be in kicking range. So I started off as more of a kicker and then my punches have come along, uh, come a long way since then. And then, uh, so it, it, the strategy came along pretty well because like the autistic brains are very upset. Like once you get locked in on something on the autistic brain, it's like, it's very obsessive. So I was like watching fights, like boxing, MMA, kickboxing, the whole nine yards, uh, wrestling matches uh, galore, you know, I don't really watch jujitsu that much cause it's boring, but <laughs> so you were kind of, uh, breaking down the strategic side and maybe quote unquote, the nerdy side of MMA, maybe more than other people with equivalent records than you. Yeah. Because I knew that I had to catch, uh, I felt like I was in a position where I had to catch up cause I started MMA when I was 20. 
And a lot of people nowadays are starting like in their teens, right? Right. But there's pros and cons to that, you know, because if you start in your teens, then you're old, then you're a 29 year old old fighter like Roy McDonald, for instance. Right. He's he had his first fights when he was like 15 years old. And so the miles add up either either way, the miles add up at the end of the day. That's the way I've seen it and observed it from a kinesiology's perspective over the years. But almost from the get go, then you were already breaking down fights. Yeah. And uh, just from my exercise science background, too, I can identify biomechanics pretty fast. Mm. So that's why I knew that Ally Quinta was going to struggle with leg kicks with Cerrone this weekend, like I was telling you about. Because biomechanically, right, like we were talking about before, right, he's in that crouched position. So just the break so i not only break down like the fighters and their strategies but their biomechanics how they move right how they change direction how you know what's their quickness like etc what's their strength like you know their power their power right so it's kind of like a puzzle for you sort of i guess yeah i, I guess you could say a, pu- a puzzle right more the the their movements their biomechanics is more of a puzzle but strategy to me is just like chess right the strategic part is chess right whereas like the biomechanics is more of a puzzle right for instance uh, a fighter right they may have a certain goal right like okay i want to get a takedown right but biomechanically how do you get that takedown right so for instance if i'm a taller fighter taller lankier guy what kind of takedown am i going to want to employ typically if i want to get the fight on the ground if my primary mo is to get the fight on the ground as a taller fighter i'm going to go for more trips and throws because biomechanically that's where my advantages are right because for a taller fighter to level change it takes too long it takes much longer than a shorter fighter to level change and shoot shoot a single leg or a double leg you look at john jones a lot of his takedowns do come from throws he does do the occasional blast double, but those are the ones that people are able to shuck off easier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's more of a body. Yeah, he's more of a clinch body lock type of takedown guy versus like, I'll just use GSP, for example, blast double. But he's, that's his biomechanical advantage. He's not tall for his division, but he wasn't short for his division either. He's kind of, everything with GSP, like, was pretty much right in the middle. So he wasn't too tall, but he wasn't too short, or he wasn't too, he was stri- He was strong, but he wasn't like so strong that it inhibited his like quickness and change of direction, if that makes sense. So he, in terms of athletically, I would say GSP has been the most balanced athlete to ever graze MMA. Now, your interest in biomechanics and human movement, did that, come because of your major or did you already have that interest before your major which is why you majored in it so i majored in exercise science because i wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach at this is just like at the time i was like okay i'm gonna play college football see what happens with it right but you know you know whatever happens happens but after i'm done playing football i'm going to be a strength and conditioning coach so that's kind of where that came from. And then um, I guess 
I guess as I was in college, right, the biomechanics themselves became more and more interesting to me. I, I wanted to do exercise science, I guess, and be a strength and conditioning coach just because I've always just been so active. So I just couldn't picture myself doing something else. So, but now it's kind of like, okay, yeah, I do personal training and stuff and strength and conditioning, but you know, the primary MO is to be a fighter, you know, and to be a mixed martial artist. And I obviously I haven't, I'm not even close to the end of my career, but I haven't like, I have the faintest idea of what I'm going to be doing afterwards. How did you end up from Alabama to Factory X to Syndicate MMA and everything in between? So I guess we'll we'll go with we'll go with this, right? I was five and oh as an amateur. I was uh, you know, doing well and blah blah blah. And then you win this fight, you know, we'll turn you pro and stuff, right? So basically I had this fight where I knocked the guy down three times in the fight with my hands, like knocked him down. But somehow I, you know, and yeah, I fought terrible in the third round because I gassed myself out trying to finish the guy in the first two rounds, right? So I actually ended up losing a split decision. So I was five and one as an amateur at the time. And then it was kind of weird. It was like when I lost that fight, you know, me and this girl broke up and stuff. And then after that, it was just kind of like, man, I noticed that. I wasn't very happy in my, with my life outside of fighting, you know, like the, the, like in the cage and everything was great. You know, I'm happy. I'm happy when I'm training, beating guys up in the cage or whatever. <laughs> right. But outside of that, man, that's all I had. Like, that's literally all I had to, to give me like, you know, besides like family and stuff like that, you know what I mean? Just like, you know, I mean, I had friends too, you know what I mean? But I, I noticed that, you know, I just wasn't very happy with it, how everything was going. Cause like I had a college degree, but I was delivering pizzas. Right. So I'm like, I went to school for four years, got a degree and now I'm delivering pizzas. What, the, what the hell's going on? So I was like, okay, I got to do something to like kind of kickstart, you know, kickstart my life, I guess, so to speak. So I ended up, emailing this world-class performance you know performance center called landout performance in in uh, denver colorado and uh ended up they wanted me to do an interview and so i ended up taking a trip up there doing an interview for this uh, for this internship at landout performance in person which they weren't expecting they were expecting me to do it on skype because i was living in alabama but uh, I was like, no, nah, I got to go up there in person. So I did that. And then I checked out factory X while I was there. And so I ended up getting the internship and it was like a six month long internship over there. So I worked with NFL players during their off season and then worked with MMA fighters. That's the, that was, those were the two groups that I mainly worked with. I mean, I worked with, you know, volleyball players and, uh, and, uh, you know, it, all other sports kind of in between a little bit of baseball, like other sports kind of in between those. So then I ended up training at factory X while I was living out there. And I did my last amateur fight in Denver. And then, you know, I just kind of noticed, I was like, you know what, this is a pretty good fit for me, but you know, maybe something doesn't feel, you know, it, 
it wasn't quite right. Like I loved the city of Denver and everything. Like I love the people. I love Factory X and Mark Montoya and all those guys, right? But it wasn't quite the right fit, if that makes sense. Like I was like, okay, this is a good fit, but this is not like the best fit for me. So so ended up kind of hitting the reset button and going back to uh, back to Alabama and Port City MMA and those guys and those are a great bunch of guys too down there. Um, and ended up doing my first three pro fights in the Southeast. I actually had one of my pro fights in Atlantic City actually. So my first fight was my pro debut was in New Orleans. I got a guillotine in the first round. It was a very sloppy performance by me, <laughs> probably because I was so excited to fight as a pro. And then I uh, ended up going out to Atlantic City. We took a fight in Atlantic City after that and won a split decision, which that was that was bullshit. I was beat the shit out of that guy. Pro fighting now means you get paid, right? Yeah, exactly. You get paid and your record counts. What kind of payments are you getting? How much are you making per fight? Nothing to note. Let's just put it that way. It's not enough to like, I mean, it's, it's decent. It, it's a little bit of money, but it's not like, like, can you make rent with it or no? Oh, you can make rent with it. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on where you're living, of course. So like right now my rent's like 600 bucks where I live right now. But you have multiple roommates, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I it's, yeah. So my rent's 600 bucks, right. And that's utilities included. Right. So with my show money, I'll make rent, right. Let alone the show and the wind money. Regional MMA, not lucrative. No, not very lucrative at all. <laughs> That's why I have a, a job. You know what I mean? If it was, if my, if my purses were super lucrative, that's all, all I would be doing is training and not having to work a job. Like, so for instance, right. The last few weeks there, since I've moved out here, right. I haven't had a single day off of work until like two or three weeks ago where I was like, nope, I'm just going to make Thursday my off day because I don't even get that many clients anyways on Thursdays, right? So then I was able to, you know, I've been able to build up my client. I've been able to build up my client base outside of the facility that I work at right now. So I'm able to kind of, now I'm able to kind of play by my own rules, I guess you could say. So now, for instance, I'm not doing 5.30 a.m. clients anymore. Right. I'll, I'm training guys at 6 a.m., but I'm not training them at 5.30 a.m. at this facility. So the facility that I work at, right, it takes 20 minutes to get there. Right. So if I have a client at 5.30 in the morning, I need to get up at 4.30 because I got to squirm my way out of bed. You know, that's going to take about, you know, 15 minutes, give or take, maybe even 20. Now I've, I've got two clients. I got a couple of clients outside of the facility and then come June. I've got other clients that are starting up beside the besides the facility, right? So as a personal trainer, it's always better to get clients outside of the facility that you work at independently because then you don't have to give somebody else your cut. Your cut is your cut, right? So for instance, the facilities will be like will say, "Oh, we're going to get your clients for you and blah blah blah," right? Awesome. But we're also going to take 80% of your cut, which is just insane. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Going back to your MMA career now, you were in Alabama. You're currently, you're describing life in Vegas. So, so what happened from Alabama? So, um, I was starting to kind of have problems in Alabama. Like I'm just the type of person. I don't really fit in in Alabama very much. So 
like my life outside of training again is the same thing same problems right life outside of training there was nothing all i had was training right i didn't have a life outside of training like i mean i had friends and stuff you know but i never really saw them you know what i mean so so much about like you were saying about your life as an autistic person, people just think so long as you're doing something, you got a job or you're going to school, they think everything is set. But you're saying is it's not enough for you to just be training. You also need that kind of community and you might've been getting good training, but where you were living in Alabama, as far as community goes and the life outside of training goes, you weren't being fully fulfilled. Exactly. So that's why I was like, okay, I got to get out. I got to get out of here. I got to start, you know, I got to go somewhere else and just experiment a little bit. So, uh, I had a friend of mine reach out to me about coming over to syndicate. You know, he told John Wood about me and gave me his phone number and stuff. And I communicated with them, told them what was going on and what I was looking for. And said yeah so basically after my last fight i lost that fight by split decision unfortunately (laughs) right man i would love to get that fight back but (laughs) anyways so i lost that fight by split decision i literally just took all my stuff packed it in the car and just drove like the same like couple days after i i lost that fight i packed up my stuff and just and drove over there just because i was like there's nothing there's nothing for me out here, you know? I mean, I'll train MMA, whatever, but outside, of, if if all I have is MMA to make me happy, well, you know, the feeling of victory only lasts, it's a great drug, but that, that high of victory only lasts you like that day. And then you wake up the next day and you're like, oh, I'm not a gladiator anymore. I'm just Justin. You know what I mean? Nevada, I would say, is very like, it's a very weird state. It's a very weird place. That's the best way I put. And I'm a pretty like I'm. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna like kid around. I'm a pretty weird dude. <laughs> so like it kind of fits, right? I'm a weird dude. This is a weird place. Okay, cool. And I've been able to kind of connect with like you know people that are kind of weird like I am, you know, in certain ways, right? So that that's what that's kind of what's nice is like like it was my my chiropractor was talking to me about this and he was like yeah the thing i like about vegas is like nobody can hide their weirdness for long out here (laughs) you know i was like okay yeah i guess that makes sense it's hard to explain that unless you live here i guess so when you got there and you just kind of got there abruptly was there a tryout process how does uh getting onto an mma team work depends on the gym and depends on your experience right so i had i was a professional fighter had a record and kind of had my friend tell you know help me out you know so with the help of my friend right and stuff then I was able to I was able to uh, kind of have a good word, I suppose. But if the coach doesn't like know you or anything like that, maybe a certain MMA gym they would have you try out or whatever, if that makes sense. So like Jackson Winklejohn, for instance, I know that they do tryouts, even for pro fighters, they do tryouts. Unless you're just like like for instance, if I'm like a big hot shot fighter, like. If I'm if I'm like Kamaru Usman and I just want to go train 
and like if he wanted to just go change gyms, he could just go change gyms. I mean, he wouldn't do that, but you know, I mean, if you're a certain guy, right, you can do whatever you want. If you're just some amateur though, you're going to have to prove yourself because there's a lot of amateurs that are just kind of in it and they're kind of not taking it seriously, whatever. They're just doing it for the hell of it. But then there's some amateurs that are really dedicated and want to do it. So certain coaches, right. They're not going to take the guys that are just kind of in it as a hobby. Right. Nor should they, but some coaches will take those guys. So it, each gym is a little bit different. So for, in, for in this instance, no, I didn't have to try out, but maybe some guys do have to try out. That's kind of why, why I'm really looking forward to my next fight and like getting in the cage again, because, um, it's just, I feel like a very different person now versus who I was before. Cause I'm very comfortable with everything. Not, not with, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable now than I've ever been outside of the cage, if that makes sense. What is training like there? Because when I think of syndicate, I think of more of a striking based Muay Thai school. Um, so if you're an MMA guy, it's definitely more MMA centric, right? So I'll use my routine. Like everybody's kind of got their own routine, right? Cause everybody, you know, some people work at night, some people, you know, work early in the morning, whatever. Right. So, uh, what my routine is, is I'll train a client and then I'll go to morning Muay Thai from nine to 10. And then afterwards I'll drill little, little things, maybe hit the bag a little bit, or I'll go to the jujitsu. That's right after the morning Muay Thai. And then we have an MMA practice from 1130 to one, which we just go over, you know, mixing, you know, just like scenarios and fighting, right? It's very scenario based, like, okay, we're on the fence here and then he's turning this way. You need to get this under hook or whatever, right? Is that only for fighters or can just regular people who do it just for fun take that class? Only for fight team guys. Yeah. So we have that MMA session and then at night. Uh, what I'll do is if I didn't do jujitsu in the morning, I'll do the jujitsu at night and then I'll either drill what I went over to that day or do a strength and conditioning session at syndicate. Cause they have a weight room there. And then what about one-on-one -on -one time? So what I do is, uh, I just tell John Wood or uh, AJ Matthews, Hey, I've got, this is my schedule. Do you have any openings on your schedule? And then we work it out. We work it out that way. So I do what I've been doing so far is I've been doing basically a little more of a Muay Thai based lesson with AJ Matthews. And then I'll do more of a MMA striking lesson with John Wood. Are there a lot of coaches there? Yeah, there's quite a bit. So how does that work? Is it like uh, a lot of, uh, you know, boxing gyms or even Muay Thai gyms? It's more like you're a fighter there. And then certain coaches like just kind of pick you out like, oh, I kind of like working with you. And then they end up being your main coaches. Is that how it works there also? Or is it more like John Wood decides who you work with and he's your main coach? So it kind of works like this. Like John Wood is every, most of the guy's main coaches, right? So for instance, for my striking like I work with AJ Matthews for my striking, right? Whereas other people might be working with like Rich Grindle on their striking, or I know some guys that go to Jimmy Gifford for boxing. And then for jujitsu, right? You can go to Vinny Magalesh or uh, Mike Pyle, et cetera. 
how did you link up with AJ Matthews as your striking coach? Uh, so I've always just been, ta- I've been taking his Muay Thai uh, classes in the mornings and just really like the way he's been helping me out. Like he's been uh, making my strengths stronger and, you know, he's really identified my strengths as a striker made them better i guess like he's really just kind of taken his what his technical knowledge and made my traits better as a striker and so basically you know i did his classes and just really liked it really liked it how he communicated so i was like hey can i do some after because he had a fight with uh, david rickles and bellator so i was like hey after your fight with caveman you know can we you know, can we do some privates together? And he said, sure. So then after that, it's just kind of, we had some private lessons and it's just kind of go gone on from there. And it's not necessarily like I wouldn't take another striking coach or anything. It's just that his striking classes work best for my schedule. So I was just going to his striking classes and I really liked how he communicated. And, uh, it's, uh, I guess the rest, you, you could say the rest is history, I suppose. And when you arrive there or whenever you meet new coaches, are you very transparent and let everybody know, Hey, I have autism. You might have to explain things differently for me. Yeah. Yeah. They all know. They all know. Everybody knows. I'm actually not the only person on the autism spectrum at syndicate. So that's, what's kind of nice. Uh, there's another fighter. Her name is Serena De Jesus. She, she's also on the autism spectrum and she was there before me. So then they kind of understood kind of how it, they kind of understood from a general sense, how a uh, fighter on the uh, autism spectrum works. But I mean, we have our differences, but there's certain traits that are similar, I suppose. Now you as a fighter on the autism spectrum, do you feel like you have certain advantages because of autism as a fighter? Yeah, I think so. Um, For instance, like I have an ability to keep things a lot more objective than other fighters. And then it's kind of like, I don't know, like uh, I can get very dialed in, like especially on fight night, I'm I'm pretty dialed in and I'm kind of like almost emotionless. But then it's like when I get in the cage, like I just kind of, like as the fight goes along, I start to kind of, I don't see things in like grays, right? I see things as very black and white. So for instance, like as soon as I enter the cage, I'm like a gladiator. Like I know what I signed up for. Does that make sense? Whereas like other guys are kind of in it for like the show and I'm, you know, it's a sport and blah, blah, blah. Whereas like to me, I'm like, no, this is a fight. You know what I mean? Like I'm, so I, I see that as an advantage for myself. Like I know what I'm going in here for. I know what I signed up for kind of thing. Do you get nervous at all? Um, I think everybody gets nervous, but I'm so, I'm, I'm kind of more so like excited, you know, when I go into the cage, like I think one of the funniest moments for my career was my last amateur fight with when I was training at factory X, Mark Montoya was wrapping my hands and I was just like, and I wasn't even being cocky about it. Maybe, maybe it was cocky. I don't even know, but in my mind, it didn't, I didn't feel like I was caught being cocky. I was like, I was, he, Mark Montoya was wrapping my hands and I'm like, this guy is so fucked. He is so fucked. (laughs) You know, like I just kept saying that over and over again you know? And, uh, so it's just certain, I don't know. It's weird. Like each fight's kind of a little bit different, I guess. 
there's not like a con like i guess the one constant is that i'm ready to go to battle and i'm like loose with that idea i have fun with it but i know that i'm going to battle if that makes sense so you don't see a fight as like 50 different things. It's also my this. It's also my time to be famous. It's also a fight. It's also a way to feed my family. It's not like 800 different things for you because you think of things so black and white. It's just door closes. I'm a fighter. This is a fight. Simple. Yeah, exactly. It's simple. It's a, it's a fight. You know, we're here to test each other. But I always think of MMA as like history repeating itself. It's like people are going to the Coliseum. It, that's, there's a reason why people cheer for striking a lot more than grappling. It's because they like to see blood. <laughs> Just bleed. No, but no, seriously, like it, it is. We are literally recreating history. It's all it's just history repeating itself, except for you know, the gladiators in this case are choosing to do what they're doing, right? They're not being forced to, and we're not having lions jump in there, if that makes sense. So it's basically, it's the closest thing you can get to a fight to the death. I mean, let's just be honest. (laughs) My thing is too, like, I don't do this whole thing where like these guys will talk shit to each other and blah, blah, blah. Then afterwards they're all like, Oh, I didn't mean any of that stuff, man. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, if you're going to talk shit to me, you better mean it. Cause if you're going to talk shit to me, I'm not shaking your, I'm not going to shake your hand afterwards. Cause I, I just keep it. I just keep it. Just keep it 100, man. If you really feel that way about me, then yeah, I I'm all right with people talking smack to one another. If that's the way they genuinely feel, but not if they're just faking it, if that makes sense. Now, when you are in the fight, a lot of fighters talk about how they feel overwhelmed. Like there's too much information, too much stuff happening. They could hear the crowd. They could hear the coaches, the other coaches, and they kind of sometimes uh, freeze up. And being somebody who's not neurotypical, what is the process like for you when you're in the cage? Do you ever feel overwhelmed, like sensory overload? Or do you feel like, uh, no, this all makes sense? No, I mean, I, gener- I I feel like it all just kind of makes sense. I have a problem in front of me and I'm tactically solving it, you know, and I've got assistance from my coaches. The only thing I can hear are, are my coaches and the occasional like screams from the crowd. But otherwise, the crowd isn't really on your mind. No, not really. Now, another thing about you is you also are an artist, right? And we haven't talked about that at all, but I know you post a lot of your artwork online on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I, I love drawing. I haven't gotten to draw as much since I've moved out to Vegas just because I've, I've had so much going on at once. But uh, once my schedule starts slowing down, it, it's starting to slow down a little bit. But once my schedule starts slowing down, I'll start doing art on Twitch again. The only drawings I've done in Vegas so far have been just kind of on my own and I just draw and then I'll post it. But I, I generally do uh, fan art. So like I'll draw comic book characters or manga or, or, you know, stuff like that. When did that start for you? Uh, so I was always good with art. Like I always, when I grew up, I, uh, I grew up with comic books initially, but then I switched over to manga because comic books are, you know, especially for Marvel and DC, they're just selling you the same story over and over again. And I kind of got bored of that. So uh, I switched over to manga and uh, I just, I started 
you know, when I was growing up as a kid, I was drawing and stuff like that. And then, you know, high school came along and I kept drawing throughout high school. And then I actually had this, this Scarface painting and my, my, uh, teacher was like, dude, like you should like be a painter. Like, (laughs) you know, and I chucked the painting away. It's like the paint, it's the part in Scarface where he's got like all the cocaine, like on the table (laughs) and he's just sitting there. I painted that for us for school and got a perfect score on it. And he's like, you could legitimately sell this. And I threw it away. I was like, oh man. So, so, uh, my art skills, like, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a familiarity thing. Right. So like I stopped drawing after high school and, you know, just cause college is there and I'm studying and doing all this other stuff and then I'm fighting and I just didn't have enough time for it. But then once I got out of college, I started having a little more time. So I started drawing again and, uh, my artwork, it, it, it gets better. It's just like anything else. It gets better as you do it. Right. But, um, I'm still not quite as good as I used to be, but I'm getting there. And then I'm hoping one day I can get better than what I used to be. But right now your real love is MMA, but artwork is just something you like doing. There's a physical real love, which is MMA and, and mental, I suppose. But art is kind of like another, you know, it's not to the same extent, I guess, in terms of commitment. But I do love I do love art, too, I guess. It speaks to a different part of you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, like, you can love your your wife and love your mom, but you don't love them in the same way. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? So it's kind of the same thing with MMA, like how I love MMA versus how I love art, if that makes sense. Actually, speaking of moms, what do your parents think about you pursuing MMA? Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're good with it. I mean, my mom's always an emotional wreck every time I fight. <laughs> so my stepdad has never missed a fight. Wherever it is. Wherever it is, whether it was in New Orleans, Biloxi, Mississippi, Denver, Colorado, uh, Atlantic City, he's never missed a single fight. So, um, yeah, my dad was cool with it. You know, everybody was pretty cool with it. You know, I mean, they're just nervous because, you know, how fighting is. Well, you just said it. It's as close as we get to fighting to the death. Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) that's why, (laughs) you know, they're all nervous. You know, they they all get nervous about it, but they know that it... (laughs) Fighting really unlocked a part of my personality that wasn't there before, that was always hidden, I guess. So, so once that part came out, it it really made me the person that I was meant to be, I guess. That'd be a good way to put it. Because like football, I was playing football all along, but I didn't really fit in with a football crowd too much. You know, I was just doing it because, you know, I liked it a lot and I thought I loved it, but turns out i just lo- i love mma way more than i ever loved football what did it unlock though what was the part of your personality uh i guess i always was a fighter you know just ever since i had to fight for everything you know growing up on the autism spectrum so it just kind of unlocked that part of my personality that was always just like everything everything you found your fit? Is that what it was? Like you were a football player, but until you became a fighter, you were like, this is who I am. Yeah. It's kind of like that same, you know, how there's that, that, that saying, like there are athletes who are fighters and then there are real fighters. I was always a real fighter that was playing football. You know what I mean? 
so now I'm actually fighting and I'm actually, you know, being more true to myself, I guess. Cause I wasn't too much. I mean, I wasn't, I was an athlete, but I wasn't like a jock. I was an athlete, but I didn't have like the jock personality. So I kind of faked the jock personality for a little bit of my life. Being an athlete is physical. When we're talking about being a jock, that's a culture. Yeah, exactly. And you have a fight coming up, right? Um, so nothing confirmed yet, but I'm hoping I can fight May the 31st here in town. What does that mean? Why isn't it confirmed? What is it like to be a regional MMA fighter? <laughs> Do you just not know when you're going to fight? Pretty much. You pretty much don't know when you're going to fight. Let's just, you just have to be ready at, be on call at all times, especially if you're on the doorstep of getting into the UFC, you know, to get that short notice call up and skip contender series, sign me up. Not that, I mean, I would love to fight in contender series too, you know, but you gotta, you gotta be ready at any point. And that's not set up by your gym. That's more set up by a manager. Yeah, man, a manager or sometimes like promoters will contact you directly and you're just like, okay, uh, sure, I'll take this fight, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? It, it all depends, right? So like, for instance, this, this last, this, this fight coming up, they actually contacted my coach. Just so regional MMA is so weird. It's hard to explain. But once you get into like deeper into your regional career and you're getting closer to like UFC and stuff like that, it's going to be more so set up by a manager. Because didn't you have a, a fight that you might've had like this week or next, and then it turned into a possible fight at the end of the month? Yeah, that's basically what happened. So I was notified by my coach, like, Hey, get, make sure you stay ready for May the 9th because there, you know, there may be a possibility that you're fighting. So I'm like, okay, all right, I'm staying ready. I'm staying ready. And then this week, my coach just, you know, John tells me, he's like, yeah, it's not going to, it's not happening. I'm like, all right, cool. You know, whatever. So, but I'm ready for May 31st, you know, like that's kind of where my mind is, you know, I'm getting ready for the date, not necessarily an opponent. So unlike the big fighters who have like three months to prepare for a fight because they already know who they're fighting in the regional lower levels is more like, a fight might come up anytime. And so you always have to be physically ready. Yeah, exactly. And unless you're like fighting on like LFA or something like that, it's a little more organized, but yeah, even if, even in LFA, a lot of guys get called up at the last second. So you just never know. You just in regional MMA, you just never know. So just always be ready. So LFA is out of the regional shows. One of the biggest ones. Yeah, I would say it's the biggest um, just because it's kind of like they kind of pride themselves of being the NCAA of MMA. So their biggest thing is, generally speaking, they set up the best regional prospects against one another. And then, you know, one person moves on and then the other one doesn't kind of thing. So they're not trying to compete with the UFC. They're more trying to be a feeder system for UFC and Bellator and, and those bigger shows. Exactly. Well, this was an interesting, super informative chat, Justin. Where can people find you if they didn't listen to the last episode where you gave that information before? So you can find me on Instagram at Justin underscore the machine MMA. On Twitter, it's just the machine MMA, no spaces or underscores. And then Twitch, it's Justin underscore the machine. Great. Thank you, Justin. And I'll put all that information in the show notes. 
Thank you very much for having me on.